Well, some years ago during the winter holidays, I read the book A Gentleman in Moscow by Amor Tolls. Anybody, anybody read that book? It's, it's a pretty amazing book. It follows the life of Alexander Rostov as he grows up in an aristocratic household. He's sent away to Paris. He returns home to Russia just as the Bolshevik Revolution is starting. And you might remember, if you remember your Russian history, that the Bolshevik Revolution was not kind to aristocrats. So Rostov is tried and convicted as a social parasite. But because of a revolutionary poem attributed to him, he's spared the death penalty and instead is sentenced to live out his life in a luxury hotel in downtown Moscow. So the story follows his life over the next 30 years in this luxury hotel. His relationships, his weekly regimen, the political developments that naturally flow in and out of the hotel. And I distinctly distinctly remember sitting on my couch by our fireplace when I finally arrived at that last page of the book. And as I closed it, I thought to myself, man, I wish this story wasn't over. I was thinking, I just spent 30 years of my life living in a luxury hotel in Moscow. How could this be over? Great stories have a way of capturing us, don't they? Well, this morning we come to a great story. A story that we find in the book of 1 Samuel as we start this new sermon series. And it's this type of story that as you read it, you find yourself inside of it. It's profound. Part of the reasons why that's true is because the Hebrew uh, writers were great storytellers. And that was true for a couple of reasons. Uh, I think for one, it can be argued that the Bible is the foundational story For all humanity. Every story, every story that we find in literature or in film tells the story of redemption somehow, some way. Where did we ever conceive of such an idea? You know, when we look across the globe this morning and we see the conflict in Israel and Gaza, oh, that'll work out in in a few days. As if we're certain about redemption. Where did we get this idea of redemption? It's from the biblical story that we know to be true. Secondly, the Hebrew writers were great storytellers because in the ancient Near East, very few people were literate. And actually, putting pen to scroll was a serious endeavor. And so Hebrews told good stories so that those stories would be remembered and they could easily be retold. C.S. Lewis, in giving advice to writers, said, Don't say it was delightful. Make us say delightful when we've read the description. First Samuel is that kind of story. So as we make our way through the story of First Samuel, pay attention to the emotions that well up within you. Because those emotions... Uh, actually carry more freight, I think, in this story than analysis. For Samuel is therefore a story better experienced, perhaps, and studied. This morning, I want to begin to wade into this story, and I want to note three themes that draw us in 
to this story. And the first theme is the theme of longing. The theme of longing. 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1, our wars sort of way. We find ourselves in some out-of-the-way town, in some distant galaxy, some far-off planet. It's kind of like how Lord of the Rings begins, not in the center of the action, but instead in the Shire. The story of 1 Samuel opens in what seems like a grand title of royalty, all those names that Rob just read. But in reality, it's a random guy named Elkanah who lives in an insignificant village in a far out of the way place in Israel. And what we learn about this family is that their life was a mess. And if you're here this morning, you're thinking, my life is a mess. If you wish things were different and not so dysfunctional, if you have this longing for more in the reality of life, then this story is for you because the Bible is filled with these kind of real life stories. Stories that help us understand our own life. We're a mess. And yes, I just said marriages plural. And you're thinking to yourself, whoa, it's a little early in the morning for polygamy. But a number of characters in the Old Testament had more than one wife, not because it was God's design. We can go all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, and see the holiness of marriage. That God says that we become one with one another, man and woman, naked but not ashamed. That in marriage it's so intimate that a man and a woman know one another as only God knows them. That's profound. But there's several reasons why polygamy was a common practice in the ancient Near East. First, it was a culturally accepted practice. And as we'll see, Israel in a lot of different ways wanted to keep up with the Joneses. They were taking their cues from the surrounding cultures. And there's a second reason, and it relates to children. Let me just say this. There was no helicopter parenting in the ancient Near East. It wasn't a thing. From one perspective, children were a labor force for your family and your retirement plan. That's the reality. And in Elkanah's case, it becomes clear that Hannah was his first wife, his true love, but she was barren and was unable to have children. And you can probably imagine the conversation that they had after several years of marriage and trying to get pregnant. Maybe one night after dinner, they're, they're talking about the way forward. And they just thought to myself, themselves, you know, it seems like the only way, Elkanah, is for you to take another wife. And so that's what he did. But we see God's design in marriage because what takes place is that a bitter rivalry develops between the two women. Penina had Elkanah's children, but Hannah had his heart. But neither wife had both. Elkanah was a mess as a husband. Before Jerusalem became the capital of Israel and the location of the temple, the tabernacle resided in a city called Shiloh. And to his credit, Elkanah faithfully pursued the Lord. Each year he would take off work, 
He would load the family into the proverbial station wagon and they would make the trek to Shiloh where they would have a week off from work, worshiping God, celebrating, praying, being together, feasting. And yet it was here that the rivalry would really be obvious. You can imagine at the feast there around the tabernacle that the whole family would be there gathered around the table. Penina would be sitting next to Elkanah and all of their children. And then down at the end of the table sat Hannah, all by herself. And Elkanah tried to make it better. He really did. He thought just like a guy would think. And he thought, how do I make this better? And so he offers Hannah a double portion of meat. And then he says to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? And I'm sure all of this left Hannah swooning. (laughs) There isn't a greater balm for a woman's soul than a double portion of meat and a man saying, isn't my love enough? I see some young guys in the back making copious notes. What not to do. The longing of Hannah's heart for children, it represents a bigger longing in Israel, in the book of 1 Samuel. And go all the way back to the first of this story, at the beginning of the story of the Bible, that, that after the fall, God promised to redeem the world. And every step of the way, page by t- page, we get glimpses of how this promise would be fulfilled. First with Noah, where God announced that he didn't intend judgment for the world, but instead redemption. And then through Abraham, he promised us that that his redemption would come through Abraham's family. Through Moses, God gave both his law and his presence to abide with his people forever. And then we find in the book of Joshua that God's people Israel, they conquered And settled into the promised land. But then we turn into the book of Judges. And the story picks up. Israel is settling into the land. But their faith waxes and wanes. And when their faith bottoms out, God raises up a leader, a ruler called a judge. Which in that day was like a a warlord in a feudalistic society. It ultimately points to Israel's need And here's how the book of Judges ends in chapter 21, verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. All the people did what was right in their own eyes. That's an eerie ending, isn't it? So the book of Judges is really an apologetic for why Israel needs a king. Hannah's barrenness, therefore, was Israel's barrenness. Hannah's longing was Israel's longing. And we're going to follow this theme throughout the book, this theme of longing. The second theme is the theme of holiness, the theme of holiness. In verse 9 through 11, we find out what Hannah did with her longing. Picking up in verse 9, after they had eaten and drunk at Shiloh, Hannah rose and presented herself before the Lord. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. 
And she made this vow. O Lord of hosts, if only you will look on the misery of your servant and remember me. And not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a male child. Then I will set him before you as a Nazarite until the day of his death. He shall drink neither wine nor intoxicants. And no razor shall touch his head. Certainly this was a personal request, a cry coming from a decree of desperation. But also she's ultimately submitting herself to the Lord. She's saying, Lord, if you would honor me with a son, I'll give him back to you. I'll give him back to you for priestly leadership. Leadership that's much needed in Israel in these days. Well, in the midst of this earnest prayer, Eli, the high priest, observes her praying. In verse 13 for 14, we pick the story back up. Hannah was praying silently. Only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli thought she was drunk. So Eli said to her, how long will you make a drunken spectacle of yourself? Put away your wine. Guys, the Bible is really, really funny. I hope you see this. This is the first indication in the story that something's really, really, really wrong in Israel. (laughs) Earnest, heartfelt, heart-rendering, holy prayer is so absent in Israel that Eli, the high priest of the tabernacle, can't even recognize it. He assumes that Hannah was feasting with her family, drank too much wine, and just kind of stumbled over to the tabernacle. And now she's just kind of talking out of her mind. But Hannah clarifies that she's pouring out her soul to the Lord. She asks the high priest not to judge her. And then opens up her heart to him and says she's been experiencing great anxiety and vexation. Verse 17, Eli tries to walk this back. He's like, oh, yes, of course. Go in peace. May the Lord answer your petition. (laughs) And something interesting happens, though. Hannah, whose name means favored one, she says to Eli in conclusion, Let your servant find favor in your sight. In other words, may the favored one find favor. May God make true on my name. And then here's the real pivotal turning point. Anna went to her quarters, ate and drank with her husband, and her countenance was sad no longer. And we find out that the Lord remembered her, which doesn't mean that somehow he like wrote down her request on a post-it note and put it on his desk and forgot about it and came back to it a couple of months later. It's that he always had her in mind and intended to meet the needs of her heart to answer her prayer. And so she gave birth to a son whose name was Samuel, which literally means the son that God promised or the son that God has given. You know, there's an ever so subtle difference from the way that we read this text and the way that we remember this text. And the difference is significant. The way we remember this text goes like this. First, Hannah prayed. Second, Hannah gets pregnant. Third, Hannah is filled with. And if that's the sequence, then God is nothing more than a genie in a bottle. 
And our relationship with God is contingent upon any number of factors. Our sales pitch to him, whether or not he's having a good or bad day, whether we're on his good side or his bad side. But that's not the way the text actually reads. The way the text actually reads goes like this. Hannah prays. Then she experiences joy and peace from the Lord. And some months later, she becomes pregnant. Despite the failings of Eli as a high priest, here we see Jesus, our eternal priest, in a profound way, ministering through an imperfect priesthood to meet the true needs of Hannah's heart. Having children was a wonderful blessing in the ancient Near East, especially for a woman who for years had been barren. But there were many, many women in Israel's history that prayed this same prayer, and they never had children. But they needed something deeper. And God met Hannah's heart in that deeper way. Hannah's was a profound spiritual transformation. This family, much like perhaps your own, was filled with shame. Penina had children, but not love. Children, both women felt incomplete. Both women felt shame. And as a result, both chose derision and hatred toward the other. You know, shame can often be a powerful window into the soul. It can reveal where we've truly placed our hope. How does shame shed light on the barrenness of your own soul so that you can bring it to God? Hannah discovered that no matter how much she struggled against her rival, No matter how much she struggled with infertility, nothing could take away her shame except the ministry of God's spirit. That's what she ultimately needed. And Hannah realized that if she had God and nothing else, she had everything. And that's the mysterious power of his holiness. And his holiness will be a theme that we will see throughout the book of 1 Samuel. The third theme is the theme of kingship. The theme of kingship. During Hannah's lifetime, it's likely that Samson was the judge, this warlord ruler of Israel. And we all know how that story went. (laughs) You know, Samson was dedicated to the Lord, but a Philistine woman ultimately captured his heart. Look to rulers like uh, like Samson, and they kind of had this picture of what a king ought to be. But no man in their view could ever be that sort of king that met their expectations. A significant effect in the story of 1 Samuel, a significant effect that the story will have on us is disappointment. In a strange way, the message of 1 Samuel is that it's good to be disappointed by this world It's good to be disappointed by this world. You see, Hannah had no idea what was ultimately going on the day that she went into the temple and poured her her heart out to the Lord. 
God not only met the needs of her heart with love, but he also remembered her prayer and gave her a son. But in giving her a son, he wasn't just giving a son to Hannah for Hannah's sake. He was giving Hannah a son for Israel's sake. For this son would be named, and he would become the last judge of Israel. And his character would serve as a template for what a righteous king should be. What Israel should expect from the Lord. And Samuel would usher in Israel's monarchy, first with Saul and then with David. And we find in the book of 2 Samuel chapter 7 that God makes this eternal covenant with David and his family. And it goes like this. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom He is the one who will build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. And when he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you. Your house and your kingdom will and your throne will be established forever. And of course, we know the story of David and Solomon. But this covenant of kingship would ultimately find its fulfillment some years later in a small, out-of-the-way town along a dusty road in Israel where a Jewish couple would fall in love. And mysteriously, the wife becomes pregnant. A miracle. And the couple goes into crisis mode because they're just engaged. They were filled with anxiety. They began to be haunted by shame. But God met this woman too. And he says, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. If Hannah was the favored one, you are truly the favored one. And now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you will name him Jesus, and he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. One commentary concludes, the question that needs to haunt us as we look at the whole of the book is this. If we are going to do a character study, which character should we study as most important? We will learn a lot from Samuel, from Saul, from David in this story. But ultimately, this story gives us spiritual vision. Vision for an invisible king becoming visible in our life. 1 Samuel ultimately tells us that there's truly only one king. That all the other kings of the world, all the other things that we trust in for authority, all the things that we trust in to come through for us, all the things that we choose to govern our lives will forever disappoint us and that misplaced trust inevitably leads to shame. But God's true king, Jesus, 
was the one who was punished by the rods of men, took our shame upon himself, and died for the waywardness of our heart. And when we look to him as our true king, like Hannah, God meets the deepest needs of our soul. It is good to be disappointed by this world. And could it be that your disappointment this morning is actually the coming of your true king? Longing, holiness, kingship. May we find ourselves inside this story, a story of a coming kingdom. Let me pray. Oh God, our refuge and strength, true source of all godliness, graciously hear the devout prayers of your church and grant those things which we ask faithfully that we may obtain effectually. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.